Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what's this a podcast of? It's a podcast of happiness and wellness and amazing stories and things that just uplift the spirit a little bit. And yes, there is some medical pearls. I love dropping medical pearls. But today's podcast is very special to me because no one knows this, but around July or August of 2022, yeah, I had a really hard time finishing lectures. And for those who know me, I yammer on and on. I lecture for four to eight hours sometimes. I couldn't even do a one-hour lecture. And I just thought it was me being mean. I'm overworked, you know what I mean? And underpaid. I work at USC. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of took some rest and things didn't get better. And, you know, I was struggling to talk and it affected going out and hanging out with buddies. And even I was selecting who and when I talked to, and it made me sad. You know, I was like sacrificing my social life, time with family. And finally, I went to go see an, an ENT doctor. I guess we call those otolaryngologists. And I saw an amazing one who, by the way, is the guest today on the podcast. And she diagnosed me. And we're going to be talking about vocal polyps. She did surgery on me. And we're going to talk about that. But now it's just, it's amazing. She definitely changed my life and made me even a happier person, if that's possible. So today's guest is going to be her, my amazing, amazing surgeon, Dr. Carla O'Dell. And before she just chimes in, I got to gotta read her, her bio, okay? So Dr. O'Dell is an associate professor at the USC Voice Center in the Caruso Department of Otolaryngology of Head and Neck Surgery. She is the co-director of the Center for Airway Intervention and Reconstruction. She attended medical school here 
at the Keck School of Medicine, where she stayed to complete her residency training in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. She completed a fellowship in laryngology and professional voice at Oregon Health Sciences University, specializing in voice, airway, and swallowing disorders. Uh, she treats patients with voice disorders in the professional and non-professional voice users, swallowing disorders, and airway stenosis. And that just kind of means some narrowing of the airway. This includes complex airway reconstruction. Her research focuses on clinical outcomes in patients with voice, airway, and swallowing disorders, as I just mentioned, and on novel adjunct treatments to improve clinical care. And with that being said, Dr. Odell, thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. No, this is a treat. This is a treat uh, that we could talk and you're not going to knock me out and intubate me. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or stick a camera down your mouth to check your throat. Exactly. Um, let's do the meet and greet a little bit. So I love this question. So did you always want to be a doctor? And what did you uh, pick for your major in college to prepare for med school? So no, when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a chef. I loved cooking and I used to cook food for my parents and my family. So that's what I was going to go into. And then when I was in high school, I worked at a preschool and I really liked working with children. And I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll be a pediatrician because I didn't necessarily want to be a teacher per se. So I went into college with the idea that I'd probably go to medical school and be a pediatrician. My major in college was actually biopsychology because I had an interest in that. And then my minor was in history. When I was in high school, my favorite class was AP European history. And so I wanted to, you know, have that component to my college training. And so that's why I ended up minoring in history. Your husband must be super lucky for many reasons. So what, what is your go-to food? If you're going to cook for your hubby or your kids, I know you have kids, two of them, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what is your go-to mommy dish? You know, I think it varies depending on how much time we have. So I like making like pasta, Italian food. I love Asian food in general. So Vietnamese food, Indian food, all of that stuff. So I try to be um, very diverse in what we make. But a lot of days, you know, just the simple stuff. I'm really good at when we don't have that many items, like making something up with random ingredients. <laughs> I never follow a recipe. I always change it in some way. So did you say Indian food because I'm Indian and you try to kiss my butt a little bit here or something? No, no. no? It's a type of food. It's one of my favorite, my husband's favorite type of food. I just don't see you eating tandoori chicken and stuff. Well, I Is love, that your thing? No, yeah, I eat that. I like, I mean, I like everything, but I love spicy food. Really? So that's my favorite. Yeah. All right. The spicier the better. How old are your two kids? I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. So, Mike, I have a three-year-old, and you know, around the three-year-old time, they just love the mac and cheese. Did your kids go through the mac and so cheese? So, I have two very different children. So, okay. my older daughter loves everything. She loves sushi. She loves filet. She wants salmon for lunch. <laughs> my younger daughter literally only eats three foods, pancakes, pasta, and honey nut Cheerios. <laughs> so, like, they're two polar opposites, and maybe a couple of fruits. So... So after your college, and I love how you are a history buff. I love that you said AP history just to show off a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> you just couldn't say history, you know? Why, why doing a residency in ENT, otolaryngology? I mean, you said you kind of like kids and pediatrics. Why did you choose being a surgeon? You're too nice to be a surgeon. Well, I always did 
art. Like when I was a kid growing up, my mom was an artist and stuff. So I think I really gravitated early on in medical school to anatomy lab and dissection lab. And that's what made me start to think, okay, I want to do something surgical. And the pediatric thing kind of started to fade away a little bit. Um, And I loved the head and neck anatomy. And it was just like with all the nerves and everything, I thought it was very complex. And so that's kind of what drew me first to ENT or otolaryngology was that. And then, um, you know, I loved that it was very diverse. It's like you're an expert in one area, yet the problems that you treat are so different. So there's very complex head and neck cancer with big reconstruction, these long six hour surgeries. And then there's things that are very small, like somebody comes in with an ear infection and you give them eardrops and make them feel better. <laughs> and so there's this huge diversity in your skill set, your operative skill set. And you're treating patients both like in the clinic with medicine and also in the operating room with surgery that can can change things. And so that's kind of what drew me to otolaryngology to begin with. And like you said, even though it's just the the head part, there's so many subdivisions of it. So, you know, one of my buddies in your department loves sleep apnea and they're putting these stimulating devices on the tongue. Some of my buddies in your department love the ears, you know, and it's funny, we have a patient, I just saw your name on the chart. Like you were saying, you treat a diverse group of patients. This patient has, for my med students listening, has a small vessel vasculitis that nowadays being dark, we call it GPA, granulomatosis polyangiitis, <laughs> that, you're, that you really help there. So you do a lot, but my question to you is, why voice? Yeah, so I think laryngology as a subspecialty within otolaryngology or ENT had a lot of those components that I liked about ENT to begin with. So it's still very diverse. And I think you see a whole range of patients. So I still do some cancer. Um, I do airway stenosis and reconstruction patients with trachs, but then also professional voice um, and things that are kind of on the other spectrum of that. So I like that you maintain that diversity. You have longitudinal relationships with patients, so you follow them for a long period of time. But then I have some people that come in and they have a simple problem and I see them one time. And you still, you do a lot in the office. So I do a lot of in-office procedures in laryngology. So there are a lot of voice conditions that can actually be treated in the office. And so I think the office still gets to be very hands-on. So I like that you still get that combination of OR and office work. Nice answer. Nice answer. So one, one last friendly question before we just dive deep into what you're here today talking about voice problems. You know, hobbies. I like to like, you know, so we can build our friendship. Together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, do you have a hobby and what is it? So I, I love drawing and art. I haven't done that as much. I would say most weekends, like I love going to the beach. That's the thing I love about being in Southern California. And, you know, I always try to like instill in my children. We love Zuma Beach. That's our favorite. And the way that we drive down Canaan, you go down this hill and you can see the ocean. I'm always turning to my kids I'm like, we're so lucky we live here in Southern California. Look at this gorgeous view. Um, so spending time with family is probably the biggest hobby. I'm an avid reader. Oh. Um, I do everything on my cell phone. I even correct like medical school student papers on the Word document on my cell phone. So I read books on my phone, on the Kindle app. So I think when I'm not doing other things, you know, I'll be reading on my phone or doing something like that. Well, if you're, your kid listens to this, that's a good role model answer yeah. right there. <laughs> good role model answer. So, you know, let's talk about some voice stuff. What is dysphonia? What does it feel like? And what are some common signs and symptoms? So dysphonia is our fancy word for basically meaning the voice is hoarse. Um, and I think it's important to distinguish hoarseness from something like laryngitis Laryngitis is a term that people will commonly get those two confused. Laryngitis is a like a virus, 
um, that can affect the vocal cords and change the quality of the voice. Um, whereas hoarseness is just a broad term to mean a change in voice. And it can really be as simple as it just sounds different. Whether or not it sounds different to you, if other people point it out, it can be variable where it sounds okay when you first start in the morning and then you lose you know, voice quality at the end of the day. It can feel tired where, you know, the quality is okay, but it's just like, you don't want to talk anymore. Kind of what you were describing, where you don't want to go to those noisy environments because it's just like, it's just tired. It's worn out. And, you know, back to me again, you know, that was the hardest part when I was talking to you. I was like, no one freaking believes me that I'm having a problem because everyone's like, no, your voice sounds great. No, you're good, dude. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. And I like what you said for dysphonia. It's not just what someone else thinks, it's what you think. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's clutch. And is that what you see in some patients that see you for dysphonia that they notice things that other people don't? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's severities to dysphonia. So a mild dysphonia may be something that just the person themselves notices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the more severe dysphonia where I'm typing on my computer and I hear the patient check in and I do a head turn. I'm like, well, there's my next patient. <laughs> um, and then sometimes it's actually the opposite where okay. a patient will not necessarily be bothered by it, but their family will point it out to them and say, your voice sounds different. Are you sick? What's going on? Because, you know, you live with your own voice. So when there's subtle changes over time, sometimes people don't recognize it themselves. And then they'll talk to somebody they haven't talked to in a while. And they're the one that points it out to them. And then they say, yeah, maybe it doesn't sound as good. Maybe I should go get that checked out. So what are some risk factors of anything for dysphonia you know what i mean well i think when we talk about dysphonia generally yeah high vocal demands okay. is a big one so okay. people that are very talkative professional voice users singers they're going to be at increased risk of having problems smokers oh um, yeah so that's always a yeah. category of people that we take very seriously if they've experienced a voice change um those are sort of the risk factors in general so have you had dysphonia yeah, I mean, I kind of have it a little bit right now. I was going to say. I, I, I did it. So um, what, what has affected me the most is actually the COVID and the mask. So we went from a period of time where mm-hmm. we didn't wear masks. Now I wear masks all day long in yep. clinic. And I talk a lot and I talk to patients all the time. And so I have found myself talking louder to compensate for it. And I got to tell you, if anyone ever gets to meet Dr. Hotel, she's like the woman white version of Dr. Raj. You know what I mean? <laughs> she talks just as much, if not more than I do. So anyways, if someone comes in for dysphonia, uh, what, what is some of the uh, initial workup that you would kind of Well, I think the thing that's important to mention is that if you've had dysphonia for more than two weeks, you have to see a doctor that can look at your vocal cords. Oh, Um, Because I think people often assume like, oh, maybe I have acid reflux, maybe it's allergies, maybe it's something like that. And sometimes they'll go to their primary who will kind of say, well, try these things. It could be that. But really, if it's been going on for more than a couple of weeks, you need an evaluation of the vocal cords with the doctor that can look at your vocal cords. So that would be like a general otolaryngologist yeah. or what, what I do, which is more specialized in that as well. Even like laryngitis, which is a viral infection that yeah. very commonly can cause a voice change. What happens in that is that you get an upper respiratory infection, just like your nose gets stuffy. Yeah. When you get a cold, the vocal cord, that tissue gets swollen, the vocal cord tissue gets swollen, that causes a voice change. But that should only last for a few days to a week at the most. Yeah. Um, if it's lasting longer than that, then there's something else going on yeah. that needs to be evaluated. So let me go a little bit out of order. So my last question in this block was the warning signs. So 
duration of time. So yeah. I had this stuff going on for a while. I did see my primary. God bless her. She's the best. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But no, it wasn't like go see ENT right away. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and I think I'm a doctor. I must stink at it because I just kind of thought I'll just rest and rest and more rest. So is that a big message getting don't let it linger and what are some other warning signs yeah so don't let it linger one thing that's that's always something that we emphasize to like our singers and things like that is that you don't really have a lot of pain receptors on the vocal cords themselves so even if you don't have sore throat or it's not painful and you just have the voice change that really doesn't tell you that much you know obviously if you're having problems breathing problems swallowing other symptoms that go along with it I think things that are more worrisome is a sustained voice change. Mm-hmm. So when you haven't had periods of normal voicing, when it kind of comes and goes a little bit, yeah. that's a little bit less worrisome. Okay. Sort of a sustained change. So let's talk about what causes dysphonia, the bigger term. So what are some common causes? So common causes can be something like laryngitis that we talked about, like a viral infection. Okay. Lesions on the vocal cords. So there's a category of lesions that we call phonotraumatic, which are the nodules, polyps, and cysts, which I think we're going to get to in a little bit. But those are things related to voice use. You know, just just overusing your voice a little bit. So I'm sure all of us have been in the situation where we went out and we're talking loud. And then the next day, you know, the voice quality doesn't sound as good. So just general kind of trauma to the vocal cords from voice use. Yeah. You can have motion abnormalities. So a weakness of one of the vocal cords can cause a voice change. Um, sometimes we just kind of get in the pattern of using our voice in a way that's not as optimal. Mm-hmm. We call that muscle tension. So sometimes there's no, there's no lesions on the vocal cords themselves. It's just the muscles of how we're using our voice have kind of shifted for a very variety of reasons. And that can cause a voice change. So to get this differential you're talking about, it comes down to, you got to look at my cords exactly. somewhere, whether you shove us tube in my nose or you pulled my tongue forward and you put the scope there, you got to look at the cords, right? Right, right. Okay. So, and, you know, yeah. just for your listeners, it's not a painful procedure. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that we do easily in the office um, and, and can see the vocal cords in that way. I'm glad you studied the questions because you're right. My next question was going to be talking about, uh, you know, vocal polyps. You know, I mean, that's what you diagnosed me with. And it's not as if it was a big medical conundrum. You like looked at me and you're like, all right, dude. So what what are vocal polyps? And let me just kind of lead into how do they form? And uh, can you and you gave me a special one. You said mine was a hemorrhagic. What does that mean? So you could kind of answer those. Yeah, yeah. So um, the thing that's nice about the larynx is that Lesions on the vocal folds have very characteristic appearance and location. So a lot of times we can diagnose them just by looking. And so vocal polyps fall in this category of lesions that we call phonotraumatic lesions. And so there are things that form on the vocal cords in response to voice use. And they always form kind of in the middle of the vocal folds because that's the area that bears the most frictional force as we talk and we use our voice. So, you know, our vocal folds vibrate at 150 to 200 hertz. So that's basically, wow. you know, that many cycles per second. Yeah. Um, depending if you're a man or a woman, men's vocal folds vibrate at lo- a slower frequency. Um, and so that's a lot of opportunities for those vocal cords to make contact. And so polyps form because of um, that frictional force. And a hemorrhagic polyp oftentimes forms because there is blood vessels that run along the course of the vocal folds. And what usually will happen is related to voice use. Sometimes what we call a vocal accident, like you yelled too much at a football game or you overdid it um, when you were using your voice and it can form almost like a little bit of a blood blister. Mm. And then over time, that blood blister gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, and actually forms this polyp that kind of almost sticks out from the vocal fold. 
Translucent polyps are another variety. Oh, look, of you're going medical then. Yeah, yeah. So, so those are sort of like thinner polyps that form. Yeah. And then other things that people commonly talk yep. about are nodes or nodules. Man, you stole my thunder. Let's look at my <laughs> bullet point right here, dude. It says nodule. So that's what I wanted to ask you. You know what I mean? I think I did my little research. You said nodules and polyps always seem to be clumped together, but they're different. Yeah, yeah. So how is a nodule different than a polyp? And I just want everyone to know when you first said polyp to me, I was thinking like butt polyps, you know what I mean? Like my colon, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They really look like cysts. They don't look anything like my butt polyps. Yeah, you know I, mean? I mean, a cyst usually is actually under the skin of the vocal fold. So, okay. um, and sometimes has like a yellowed color to it. Okay. Versus a polyp, which actually can stick out a little bit more like a mushroom. Okay. So that's sort of the difference okay. between them a little bit. Nodules always come in pairs. So polyps usually can come in pairs, mm -hmm. but usually start with one. And then sometimes that polyp can hit the other side and create a second one. Because I got to tell you, you sent me some pictures during my surgery. Yeah. I had two. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? The bigger one was bunking the other side and yeah. creating that. Mm -hmm. Nodules are more like calluses. Okay. So you know how you get like, you know, you're doing the monkey bars too much and you get calluses on your Oh, hand. yeah, totally. So yeah, yeah. that is what <laughs> nodules more. They usually oh. come in pairs. Okay. Yeah. And then they're treated a little bit differently. Same risk factors? Same, Same risk thing. Factors. Yeah. So nodules rarely happen in men. Nodules okay. are much, much, much more common in women. Okay. Polyps, because as I mentioned, they can happen because of that vocal accident, that hit that's there. Okay. They happen more commonly in both genders. And it's really related to that frictional force uh -huh. and the pitch frequency in which people what, what What about prognosis? Which one is a little bit better? Uh, nodule or polyp? Well, they're just treated totally different. Okay. So, so okay. nodules okay. Mm -hmm. are, are commonly are treated with voice therapy. Okay. Just like if you get calluses on your hands because you're doing the monkey bars too much, yep. you wear special gloves, you stop doing the monkey bars, the calluses smooth out. So nodules are almost always treated with voice therapy yep. and rarely surgery. Sometimes ah, there are some situations okay. where you yep. may treat nodules with surgery, but for the most part, the first line treatment for nodules is therapy. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing that when you first told me it was a polyp that went through my mind was the C word, cancer, because yeah. I thought they were butt polyps. <laughs> you know? and I'm like, why me? So uh, are, are vocal polyps cancerous? No. So they form like a blood blister. And so they are not. And that's kind of the point I was making a little bit about how we can kind of see things on the vocal folds yeah. and know what things are. So these phonotraumatic lesions are not cancerous. They're never going to be cancerous. They always form in a stable location and they have a very characteristic appearance. Mm. Um, you can form cancer on the vocal folds, but it's not going to come from a polyp. Yeah, and cancer nice. doesn't form related to voice use. Awesome. How did that vocal polyp affect my voice or a voice in general? Why, why did I have dysphonia from the polyp? So the thing is the polyp sticks out on the free edge of the vocal fold. Yeah. And so it's going to disrupt the vibratory pattern of the vocal fold. Yep. It's going to impede the closure of the vocal fold. So when the vocal cords come together, they have to have this nice clean closure to create this vibration, which creates a smooth, clear sound. Okay. When you have a polyp, that polyp's in the way of that. 
So it's disrupting that vibration. It's not letting the vocal folds close all the way. Air can come up and it creates this rough quality to the voice because it's kind of sitting there in the way, bonking itself around. Yeah. And then, you know, people feel like they have to work harder to get their voice out because the polyp is in the way of closing. So they have to push the vocal cords together a little bit more. And that's what creates feeling tired or fatigued or just feeling like something's not right. And people were telling me during that period of time, I would sound, talk louder, like I'm yelling at them. You know what I mean? And also, you know, when I started my sentences, I couldn't get my voice for the first one or two words where it sounded weird and then it got better. Yeah. Are those classic? Yeah. So, I mean, I think with the polyp, most people will report that they don't necessarily have those periods where the voice sounds totally normal. So when someone tells me, you know, it hasn't been normal for the last couple of months, I think that there probably could be a structural lesion like a polyp because it's always kind of hitting there and it's never really going out of the way. Now we know how you diagnose it, you and the camera. We know what causes it, traumatic, you know. So let's talk about treatment. So <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, you know, I asked you immediately, so what are we going to do? And because you do this quite often, you just said, well, we're going to have some surgery. Yeah. And you were pretty just nonchalant about it. And then I got a little watery eyed. And you're like, is something wrong? I'm like, I'll tell you what the hell's wrong. <laughs> so did I have any other options? How do you, how do you treat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, I can't believe I was so harsh. You were so sweet, but I was like, you know, I never had surgery before. So so the thing about polyps are when they're very small, Mm -hmm. they can sometimes resolve on their own. So sometimes they'll resolve with behavioral modification. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll go back. It's kind of like if you have a blister from wearing shoes at Rough Bunny and you Mm -hmm. stop wearing the shoes, sometimes Mm -hmm. the blister can get better. Once they've reached a certain point and they've become a certain size, you can do voice therapy, you can do behavioral modification to your blue in the face but it's not going to get it to go away because it really is that mushroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then surgery is an option. Depending on the size and appearance of the polyp, you could have surgery in the operating room, which is what you have. Oh, yes. It's a pretty good size. Or you could have it treated in the office with a laser. Oh, interesting. So I didn't get the, hey, Raj, there's behavioral modifications involved. Like there is afterwards, but... For most polyps, it's not behavioral. Like, was I beyond the point of behavioral? Yeah, I think you were beyond the point okay. of behavioral. Okay. I think that always is an option. Yep. But I think one of the things that's great about how, mm-hmm. like, I feel very lucky to have this style of practice is that you remember you saw me in the office with a speech language pathologist. I did. And the purpose of that is because we kind of make this assessment, you know, is this the type of lesion that we feel like you could do voice therapy and you can really get good success with. And is this going to resolve? And sometimes we don't know. And so we don't know. We tend to push people towards the voice therapy route to start. If it looks like something that's probably not going to improve with voice therapy, that is always an option. But that's why we have that assessment with the speech language pathologist at the same time, because they can kind of weigh in on that. And there's certain things that they don't want to treat in therapy because they know it's probably not going to improve much. And there's certain things that I don't want to operate on because I'm like, this is going to actually get better with more conservative measures. I think for a lot of the professional voice users and for like my singers and performers, timing plays a lot into it. So there may be somebody who says, I don't have anything going on right now, but I need to be perfect because I'm leaving for tour in this month and I need to be 100%. I don't have time to do voice therapy and see if it's going to improve. And then other people have a different thing with it. You know, they don't have those time constraints. And so sometimes that plays into how we ultimately address these types of lesions. Well, let me, before I forget, just say that you do have amazing speech therapists and I'm going to make the love heart sign because they are just 
wonderful and I can't say enough about them. They're just as amazing as you are. Let's talk about the laser. I, I think I wasn't planning to get laser. I think you lasered me when I wasn't paying attention, but what is a laser in, in the office? How do you do that? Yeah, so um, for hemorrhagic polyps specifically, there are other conditions as well, but mm -hmm. um, for hemorrhagic polyps specifically, we use a laser called a KTP laser. Okay. So KTP is a type of what we call angiolytic laser. Okay. So it um, the heat of it absor is absorbed by hemoglobin. So it preferentially targets blood vessels or lesions like a hemorrhagic polyp that have blood or heme within them. Okay. Um, and so that's done for small polyps that either don't improve with voice therapy or the person has a timeline where they really can't wait for it to resolve itself. And in those situations, you're in the office, you sit in the chair, you have the camera through your nose. Yep. The camera's a little big, but it, it accompanies the laser. And so you get numbing medication sprinkled on your vocal cords that numbs the vocal folds okay. and you sit wide awake and you breathe. And I have the fiber that goes through the camera and we target the lesion. Wow. And, and then, do most people like, I just imagine, because you know, I'm a, I'm a pulmonologist, you know, and I do play with people's cords for a second. They're always coughing and moving and... Are it, they constantly moving all when you're trying to laser something? It's all about the numbing. Yeah. Um, and... I think that's the key. So okay. I, I think the key is that you have to have good anesthetic. Okay. Um, and you just have to kind of have good that good hand-eye coordination. Okay. Because there's some people who will just breathe and chill and they'll just treat the laser. And there's other people that are like swallowing and coughing. And yeah. Stuff. And you just have to kind of be patient and say, breathe, just breathe, <laughs> just, just breathe. breathe. <laughs> um, but most people tolerate it honestly pretty well. So I'm grateful you brought me to the OR. I had to worry about that. You know, it is, it's nervous. It was my first surgery. So when you're in the OR, what do you do? Dumb it down a little bit. I know you do crazy things. What, what was the procedure you did to me when you did your note? What did I have? Yeah. So, um, so we call that direct microlaryngoscopy. Okay. And so what that involves is actually putting a scope that goes into your mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and what the scope does is it kind of holds your larynx in its hand, if you will. And okay. so the scope goes into your mouth and it sits right at your voice box. We can actually see your vocal cords through the inside of the scope. Okay. There's no cuts on the skin or face. It doesn't traumatize any tissue. You don't have to cut anything open. It puts a little bit of pressure on the tongue. Uh, and then we use a microscope and instruments. And our instruments basically are very long and thin okay. with a little teeny area at the very tip because sure. it, it has to go in through the scope. Yep. And then you have the handles here and then you look under the microscope to do the surgery. So we have little knives and things that are there. People don't realize that the vocal cords are very small. You know, yeah. they're like the size of a nickel or a dime kind of in that range. So the polyp, which is, you know, very, it looks big on the screen. It does. And you sent me this picture. Like of teeny, like, oh tiny. It's actually pretty teeny tiny in yep. real life. And so that's how we remove it. And so basically we make a little incision, we take off the pulp, and then we redrape the normal tissue. It's called a microflap. So is this like something new that just came out, luckily, after I got diagnosed? It's been around for a while? It's been around for a while. Okay. So like, you know, the original microflap was described by kind of laryngologists that have since retired. Okay. Um, but Dr. Bob Ossoff, who was at University of Vanderbilt, he's kind of the father of okay. um, the microflap and sort of modern laryngology, if you will. Um, but it's been around for a while. Okay. So, you know, the thing that you focused a lot on before I had the surgery was what happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my friends, I'm sure they're listening to this, got a good kick out of it because you told me that I can't talk. And of course, everyone's like, Raj is going to blow that one out of the water. But um, how long must you not talk at all? And is that difficult for most patients? 
The reason that we do the voice rest is because when we take off the polyp, we redrape the tissue. And so the vocal folds are so small, you can put stitches on them, but in general, we don't. And so we're sort of relying on that adherence. So you don't want the vocal folds to vibrate. And the not talking part is variable. Um, if you kind of listen to a panel of specialists in this area, there's some variability. So okay. three days to seven days, no one exactly knows. Most people kind of agree upon a week. Okay. Um, and it kind of depends on when your OR is and when your clinic is. So it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, but not talking really ensures good healing, make sure that that flap of tissue doesn't fall down. And I think it is difficult for people. Um, and I always have sort of my tester. Mm -hmm. So I'll come in immediately post up and say, so like, how was the surgery? Was the and somebody's like, well, you know, I had like this sore throat, but then I was like eating and I'm like, I haven't told you you can talk yet, you know? And other people like, even were like, okay, we're going to record your voice. You can talk. Yeah. They, they still don't want to talk. So it is hard. And I think for, and I can't speak for everyone, but you know, for me, it was, it was so much anxiety, almost a point of depression and sadness. Like I'm going to listen to you because it meant a lot to me. And, uh, no, and you know, after you're done with listening to all your great tips and you finally get to speak again, I can't tell you for all your patients, you get really emotional when you hear your voice. Yeah, yeah. It's a great feeling after what you do. What's part of the vocal rehab? You sent me to vocal rehab with your mm -hmm, team. So mm -hmm. can you explain what that does and how often that occurs? That's done with our speech language pathologists. And they see people postoperatively as well as primarily for treatment. Okay. Um, and usually voice therapy is about 45 minutes to an hour, once a week, once every other week. And usually it's about four to six sessions of that. Okay. You know, a lot of people think about knee injuries or like, you know, you tear a ligament in your knee and you get that repaired with surgery and then you have to do physical therapy. Yep. So voice therapy is sort of akin to that. Um, and so it's ensuring that the vocal folds heal really nicely. So exercises to do that, as well as exercises and ways to use your voice in a way that may be more efficient so that this type of injury doesn't happen again. Nice. And then for our singers and, you know, yep. um, musicians, our speech language pathologists will also do singing voice therapy. So they'll do exercises and things to help maximize the singing voice, prevent injury during singing, as well as during speaking. So to kind of like dumb it down, the question is, after surgery that I had like this for most people, when will their voice go back to normal? So usually around a month. Okay. So a month is the period where when I see people back, you know, I want to see that things are healing nicely. They should feel good. Usually at about a month is when we say, okay, you can start going back to singing. You can start going back to kind of normal voice use. And, you know, this is one of those things that just I needed to ask you the minute you said we're going to have surgery for this. You know, once you take off the polyps, which you did a damn good job with, will they come back? The short answer is they can't. So you have blood vessels, they can reform the same way they formed to begin with. And that's why I feel like the vocal rehab is really important because I think the things that you learn in therapy kind of allow you to prevent re-injury of the vocal folds in that way because you're just more cognizant of a way to use the voice that may be less traumatic. Um, so they can come back, but less likely. Awesome. And, you know, honestly, after the tips that your speech therapist gave me just hanging out with you, yeah, you're more, like you said, cognizant not to do those things. You know what I mean? And you know who loved it when I couldn't speak? My kids. Yeah. Dad's not going to yell at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I got to throw this out there. You know how you gave me a button that yeah, says yeah. I can't speak? Yeah, you know, people want to buy that from me. Oh, really? So when they don't want to talk to someone, they can just wear yeah, the button. Yeah, yeah. I've heard people say that all the time. <laughs> the other thing that happens to that people will tell me is, is people will um, 
will read it and then they'll they'll write to them. Yeah. You know, like instead of, but they're like, I can hear. <laughs> I just can't talk back to you. So anyways, just two more easy ones. I think that I was lucky that I'm here at USC and I'm lucky that I found you, you know what I mean? But uh, how does the average person to my podcast, they have some dysphonia. How do they know their, their, their doctor is qualified to do? Because you, you were on my course doing a microsurgery. And the first thing in my mind is, once if she coughs and cuts my vocal cord off, how do you know that you are qualified or a person is qualified to do this? Well, I think to have your voice evaluated, any physician that has the ability to look at the focal folds, which are really going to be the otolaryngologists, ENT doctors, or laryngologists and myself, are a great place to start to have that exam if you're vocal folds. I think with surgery, the most important advice to always give people is you want to make sure that the person who's doing your surgery does a lot of that surgery. So I pretty much only operate on the vocal cords and in the larynx. So if you do one thing a whole bunch, you're going to be better at doing it because you do it a lot. So I think with any surgery that you have, seeing somebody that does that surgery commonly is always the best route to go. And, you know, there is someone out there that's going to say, I do have a hoarse voice or dysphonia, and they're going to want to learn a little bit more about you or more of the terms that you've been using. So is there any place people can go to learn more about dysphonia or you? Yeah. So, I mean, they can look at the Keck Medicine website. They can look up the USC Voice Center, which has myself, my colleague, Dr. John, who's our director, and um, our speech-language pathologist are all on there. We also have an Instagram, uh, USC Voice Center. Um, So there's like interesting videos, tips that come up. Um, Our Academy of Otolaryngology Mm-hmm. Um, has a lot of resources. And then the American Laryngologic Association also has, I'm one of the editors of the online content. And so we have a lot of patient summaries of different conditions. So there's both ones that kind of geared for residents and medical professionals that have some summaries. And then there's patient-centered ones that are a little bit more easier language to understand. So those are all great places to go. Let me just do my closing right now, which is, I mean, I really brought you here for one reason, just to say thank you. You're an amazing person. You really, even though it gets me a little emotional just talking about it because, you know, voice is precious. It's really what made me happy. But um, I think the best part about you beyond your your surgical skill and everything, you actually may be my friend, even if we weren't (laughs) colleagues. Like There's a lot of things about you that are just great. So anyways, with that being said, thank you. Dr. Carlo Odell for being here. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. It was a really special podcast. It's about me being with an amazing person who actually, you know, really changed my life at the end. So I'll see you next time on the Dr. Raj podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.